You are listening to the New Street X podcast, where we interview people who understand the intersection of physical and digital collectibles. We're entering an exciting world in the collectible space that involves things like sneakers, NFTs, trading cards, fashion, sports, pop culture, and much, much more. And these things are coming together. So we're here to talk to people that understand that, people that are really building the future of collectibles around the world. Thank you so much for listening. Please follow us on YouTube, Apple Podcasts, and Spotify, and hope you enjoy this episode. Welcome to the New Street X podcast. I'm excited to have here today a special guest, Matthijs van der Molen, the co-CEO of Sneakerness. Sneakerness is an international community of sneaker experts and professionals. They host conventions all across Europe, focused on promoting and connecting people in the sneaker scene. And they're also a platform for buying, selling, and trading exclusive and rare collectible sneakers. He's got a great background in the industry. I look forward to chatting. So welcome. Thanks so much for being on the podcast. Well, thanks, Tommy. Thanks for, uh, thanks for the invite. Of course. I'd love to learn more about what you're doing, sneakerness, uh, so many exciting topics to talk about. But maybe to jump off from that quick intro I gave you, could you just maybe explain who you are and then we could dive into sneakerness? So sneakerness started 15, 16 years ago in Switzerland by uh, a, just a couple of friends uh, with a love for for sneakers. And the initial idea was just to to trade and to sell limited edition sneakers to each other, basically, and they expect that maybe two, three hundred people. Well, to their own surprise, uh, about a thousand people showed up, uh, and I thought, okay, we, we might have something here. <laughs> and pretty soon afterwards, they uh, moved uh, already to the, abroad in Germany, where they did the first sneakerness event outside Switzerland, and uh, it really took off there. Obviously, Germany as a as a it's a big uh, European country as a Already back then, I had a real strong uh, sneaker community. So, uh, yeah, then pretty soon afterwards, uh, Amsterdam uh, uh, followed suit. And from there, the sort of network grew. And then I was a visitor myself of these events, not only sneakerness, but also Crab City, a lot of other events uh, all over Europe. In Germany back then, you had Soul Mart. And... Um, at some point, the Amsterdam show was already there. It was produced by some other guys. And at some point, they stopped doing it. And I started reaching out uh, to some people to get some info about it because I was just uh, curious, like, what happened to Sneakiness Amsterdam? And then I actually learned that one of my uh, ex-colleagues was doing the production. They were asked to do the production. Um, so I got in touch with him, and I picked up the phone and just said to him, Super straight, like, okay, dude, I know you're going to kill it on the production side, but you don't have a clue about the whole sneaker community. So uh, maybe you need some help. <laughs> and, uh, well, good news for me is that, uh, man, you, you called exactly at the right time because we only have six weeks till show, and I really don't know where to start. I don't have any connections in the industry. I don't know any sellers where to start. So... Uh, yeah, it would, would be great if you can help us. So yeah, that, that first edition was, we still call it our uh, rock and roll edition. What year is this? This is, let me think, 2013 or 14. Okay. And it was really rock and roll because we had put everything together in six weeks, which was rather crazy. We had the venue and that was about it. <laughs> yeah. But uh, yeah, I think we, we, we still pulled it off. 
And again, also to our surprise, a lot of people showed up. I think on the first edition we did, we had over 3,000 people. And then I said the famous words to my friends that did the production and didn't have a clue about uh, the whole sneaker community. I said, uh, well, guys, if you ask me, the sneaker craze is at the all-time high. So it's nice. We have 3,000 people showing up uh, this year, but probably if we do it again, yeah, we might end up with a thousand people. So please keep that in mind. Well, here we are, <laughs> nine years later, and I don't know what happened. <laughs> Things got a little bit out of control. <laughs> yeah, just so people get understanding of the range here, right? So, like, how many events do you do a year? In what countries? You know, the the rough size. It's so now, like, it seems to have grown quite a bit. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, we're, we're all over Europe. We have uh, events in Amsterdam, Rotterdam, London, Cologne, Paris, Milan, Zurich, and this year for the first time in Budapest. Uh, and next year we're looking at, to add Manchester, uh, hopefully Athens. There's some serious interest from Spain. We've been thinking and talking with a lot of people about the Middle East. That's Amazing. And how did this like growth happen? Like, I guess it just happened organically. And I guess you mentioned, you know, one of the things that you thought at the time would be an indication of whether there is potential is, is the sneaker industry growing itself? I mean, I guess taking a step back from 2013 to now, because, and there's nuance to this question, like I've asked people in the past to say, oh, like, Sneakers were like a bubble, but maybe talking about COVID time specifically. I talked to other people that have been in the industry for like 10 years, 20 years, say, no, still compared to 10 years ago, it's a lot bigger and it will continue to be, even though maybe 21, 22 was really, really hyped. It's not going anywhere. Yeah. I guess to, to turn that into a question for you, considering you've seen this growth internationally and spend a lot of time in all these different countries and cities, how has the sneaker market grown within Europe? How is it different per countries? Is it is growth concentrated just in the in bigger countries? Like what's the long tail? And and I guess how did you also decide which countries and what cities to move into apart from I guess if they demonstrate interest as well? So yeah, you already mentioned it. it it's really organic growth. Or although we, we saw an explosion indeed in the in the COVID years. I, I would say the growth on city level or country level was rather the same on overall. Uh, like we saw the, the, the same sort of rates uh, in all cities. Nowadays, there's strong growth uh, in the East European market. That's one of the reasons why we're also moving to, uh, to Budapest. And yeah, how we decide uh, where to go, that's a pretty good question. Also makes me reflect a little bit on how we did things in the past. Yes, we've grown organically, but let's say five, six years ago, we had the idea that we should be everywhere. <laughs> and maybe that's also interesting to know that uh, Sneakerness works as a, as a franchise. So there's Sneakerness International who gives out licenses to license holders in uh, specific countries. And at one point, uh, we, Sneakerness International, were the biggest license holder. So we were organizing most of the events abroad like the London one in the past or Paris. Uh, but we realized after a couple of tries, and I'm going to be brutally honest, that that was super, super difficult because you uh, you really need your your ear to the ground in, in the local market and 
So uh, nowadays, we realize that we need strong partners. And without strong partner in a specific country or a specific city, we're ba- basically not even trying. <laughs> so it, it can be that we look actively for strong partnerships, or sometimes it happens that they approach us. Athens is a, is a good example, might be on the agenda for next year. Uh, it, it's, a, it's a production company uh, who have a lot of experience in uh, big events in, uh, in Greece. Uh, they know the event, they've been to the event multiple times, and uh, now we're speaking to them if they can do the show in, uh, in Athens. So if I think about the idea of a sneaker show, sneaker convention, you know, there's, there's quite a few options. I think about things that are like just for some U.S. references, like on a grand scale, you have like Complex Con, which is not just about sneakers, but kind of a broader pop culture. You have Sneaker Con, which is similar, but slightly more sneaker focused. You have like a longer tale about just sneaker kind of trade shows, you know, where it's just you go into a room and it's a bunch of people who are just like selling stuff. So on, on one end of the spectrum, it becomes this big sort of Comic Con, big, big pop culture performances, celebrities. And on the other end of the spectrum, you could have just a trade show where you go in and it's maybe just people buying, selling, and trading. Where would you describe secretness as existing within that spectrum? And like, what did you think was missing, if anything, when secretness came about that, that didn't previously exist? Yeah, like, like I said, uh, I used to be, a vi- I still go to other events myself, uh, obviously, to, to see what they're up to. But uh, f- yeah, foremost, I was a visitor myself. And I always went there with one of my best friends. And every time we got back from these shows, we were always, well, not complaining, but uh, <laughs> we were always like, yeah, it was nice, but <laughs> could have been so much better. This was missing. They should add this. Why this wasn't there? So in the back of my mind, I already had a huge list of things I, I thought we should add to the events. Uh, and the funny, that's a funny story because... Uh, by the, by the time I got the chance to do something about it, I wrote down this huge list and I sat down with my business partners for the first event and they, they looked at it and they said, this is amazing. I mean, this, this is some great input. Uh, we, we basically love almost all of these ideas and we see the value of it. But uh, first of all, who's going to pay for it? <laughs> yeah. Uh, Big question. Good question. Uh, because b- back then we had some support from brands, but uh, revenue was mostly coming from ticket sales. And then secondly, even if we would have all the money in the world and we would execute all these ideas, how do we know if the people want this? I mean, it's on your wish list, but who tells us that they are <laughs> excited about this as well? And if we do everything on the list, what will you bring them on the second event? <laughs> From there, uh, we agreed that we would pick one or two things from that list. The funny thing is that the list sort of still exists. <laughs> it's my my big wish list. And uh, every year we, we mark down a couple of them. But what we do is that we take one or two of those items. We start small with our own budget, put some money in it, see if it works, see how the people respond. And then uh, if the response is is good, uh, we make it bigger the next year. And the, the cool thing about this is that nine out of 10 times, those are nowadays the things that the brands love. They pick up on it. Like, okay, we're, we're brand X. We would love to be at Sneakerness. We don't have a clue what, what to do as an activation. Do you have any ideas? And then uh, 
we're, we're doing this, we're doing that. Oh, yeah, that's amazing. Yeah, m- maybe we can do it together with you. And then, of course, with the help of a brand and the, and the, the budget uh, they bring, then you really can take it to the next level. So, And, and what's your ambition then for sneakiness? I mean, one of the things I heard was expanding to other cities, other countries. Is there appetite for just the size of each event to also get bigger as sneakers become maybe a bigger part of culture? And, you know, if we think about the macro growth of the industry, are the, is, is this just like growing more across the size of each individual event, number of events, brand partnerships, a mixture of things? How do you think about that? And like, what should be next? Yeah, well, to, to first get back to your uh, to your last question, uh, like where do you think sneakiness sits in in this sort of u- universe? When we started it, it started as pure, uh, yeah, selling and reselling, just renting a venue, throw in some tables, bring in some good sellers, have a, have a couple of shops, uh, maybe do a small exhibition, like a vintage vintage kicks exhibition, a DJ, some food. But yeah, with, with my background, uh, I've always been uh, passionate about writing graffiti, breaking, being a DJ. Uh, so yeah, I just I basically love uh, everything related to street culture. And, and for me, I saw the potential in bringing in all those elements, like having artists painting live graffiti at the event, having breakdance battles, uh, having panel discussions with people from the industry, because I realized that the event we did in the beginning, that was fun for people who were really, really into it, like the, yeah, the hardcore sneaker freaks. But, but even they, uh, after they've seen all the, the stock on the tables, they left. S- some stuck around to socialize, but I would say they were in for an hour and then they left. And that's where I saw the potential to, to, yeah, to basically bring the entertainment in to keep people uh, in as long as possible. Because in the end, that's good news for everyone. It's good news for the sellers because the chances go up that people actually buy something. Uh, It's good news for the shops and for the brands because obviously they can interact with the shops and the brands more. Uh, And it's also good news for us because people will stay longer, have another drink, uh, eat some food. And uh, on top, uh, it really taps into the whole community uh, aspect of it. The longer people stay, the more they start to socialize and then and catch up. So, yeah, I, I would say that was a win-win for for everyone. And I I really think that's what differentiates us from uh, from other events. If you've been to our shows, uh, yeah, I, I think we managed to really uh, bring the entertainment. It's not a complex con where it's all about the brands uh, and crazy performances by, by artists, but. Uh, uh, yeah, I think we sit nicely in the middle between uh, SneakerCon, where it's mo- mostly about the, the reselling culture, uh, and a complex con where we really sort of mix those worlds, where uh, the sneakers are still the core of the event, but there's lots of el- added value in uh, free workshops, uh, like I said, breakdance battles, tons of entertainment. Well, it's interesting to me how you, you know, kind of, came, well, you, you first started off as a sneakerness attendee and moved on to being kind of like a, a volunteer slash someone wanting to help out, get involved, to now being, of course, co-CEO of the whole international organization. What and like what, what was your background before this? I mean, were you working in fashion, sneakers, marketing events? Like, what, what did you kind of bring to the table at the time? Because, I mean, it says like, you know, your friends were saying, 
hey, I'm, I realize you have the connection to the street culture. Is that the world you were working in beforehand? Uh, looking back, it sort of makes sense. <laughs> classic, uh, classic. When I was doing a lot of the jobs I was doing, uh, I was sort of always thinking I'm going all over the place. S sometimes I do this, sometimes I, I do something completely different. But uh, looking back, it's it's sort of connecting the dots. That's I think that's a lot of fun. One of the first thing, things, as an example, I did was uh, in 1996, 1997, I started a graffiti website. Super basic. I mean, uh, we just had broadband uh, internet and uh, I had a big photo collection, like uh, analog pictures. And I thought it would be fun to scan a couple of those pictures and make a website out of it. Uh, this got completely out of hand. <laughs> I got some help by a friend who was a really already a really great programmer back then. And before I knew it, I had a website with 15,000 people daily coming from all over the, basically from all over the world. And this website was my playground. There was still a lot of uh, unknown territory, like online shopping hardly existed. I don't know. It, it was just, like I said, it was my playground. And um, I experimented a lot. So built my first web shop, got the first taste of like online marketing. And in no time, we had a very profitable business because I hooked up with uh, a big importer and distributor of uh, graffiti-related re products. And what we didn't realize that in the Benelux, the prices were a lot, lot lower than in the Scandinavian countries. So within the first week, we were getting like a ton of orders from Sweden, from Finland. These guys buying like pallets of paint. That was like really insane. <laughs> but uh, yeah, those were fun times. Like I said, that's where I uh, sort of... Uh, did my first uh, got my first experience in uh, in marketing and online marketing fast forward a couple of years i started working at the stedelijk museum it's the i would say the the most well known museum for modern and contemporary art in the netherlands one of the bigger uh, bigger ones in in europe where i was uh, responsible for basically everything online from uh, the website social media social media was still in its infancy i would say we had, there was YouTube early days, there was Twitter and there was Facebook. And I think it was, yeah, it was around the time that Facebook just got into advertising and doing business pages. So yeah, I, I knew a thing or two about online marketing. Uh, and I had my love for street culture and sneakers because the, the love for sneakers has been there since, well, basically since, since forever. <laughs> well, well, actually, I'd love to know then, like, how did that come about? Because it's always interesting to hear how someone actually gets into sneakers or streetwear, street culture. Was it something from your family, some friends? And then also, I guess, a natural follow-on is like, do you have some grails or sneakers that are close to your heart? Yeah, for me, it really started end of the 80s, beginning of the 90s. I was doing uh, track and field athletics. Nice. And to do this, you need the fastest shoes on the planet, right? <laughs> and, and back then, and back then, uh, especially Nike was really killing it with all these new models that got you the idea that if you would buy those, you could break the world record. <laughs> great marketing and great performance too. Yeah, definitely. I mean, 
also on the advertising side, I, I think Nike at early 90s, they were just smashing it. And that made such a big impression on me that uh, I convinced actually my grandfather <laughs> wow. to, to, to buy me uh, at least uh, one pair a year of uh, decent running shoes. There was just one downside to it. I could only wear those on track. I was not allowed to bring them to school. <laughs> and yeah, I mean, it, 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 it's like granddad, granddad speaking, but uh, back then it wasn't very common to go to school on trainers slash sneakers. I mean, sneakers was not even a word. They were just athletic shoes. But of course, I love them so much that I just put them in my backpack without my parents knowing. And then I put them on feet uh, at school. <laughs> so yeah, that was sort of my first introduction to uh, to sneakers. But what really sort of pushed it to the next level is the Air Max 90 infrared. I mean, uh, that, that was just, that shoe was from another planet. <laughs> and I went... After school, I went to the Foot Locker almost like daily to just look at it. <laughs> yeah. But since I got promised only like what one pair a year, uh, yeah, it, it wasn't happening for a very long time. So I decided to start it saving up for uh, for it. And uh, my best friend, uh, his mom was living in London. And I don't know how I found out, because I was 11 years old, but somehow I found out that uh, trainers, sneakers were uh, less expensive in the UK. Really? Is that just because of supply chain costs, probably, or distribution is more difficult? Like, Yeah, or, or maybe the Dutch Gilder was very strong at the moment, or I, I don't know. <laughs> so what I did, I, I saved up for, for the pair, and that took me like forever. And then when my friend uh, went to visit his mom in uh, on the summer holiday, I gave him all my money with just one uh, mission to buy me a pair of infrareds. Yeah. And uh, we're talking nine, 1990s, summer of 91, I think. Yeah, it was a different time. You couldn't call. There was no internet. So I just get, gave him the money. And then I had to wait for, I think, four weeks before he returned. <laughs> wow. So uh, when he got back, he phoned me up and, uh, yeah, 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 I, I bought shoes. Uh, you can pick them up uh, at my place. So I hopped on my bike and went there and then uh, sat down and he said, okay, there, there's something I need to tell you. The pair you were after, I couldn't buy. I just couldn't find it. I looked all over London and it just wasn't there. And I was already like, what the fuck? What, what, did, he, what did he do? There's only one pair I, I would like to have. So what the hell did he buy now? <laughs> and he said, it is the same model, but it's in a different color. So I hope you like it. Now it's in a different color, color, color. I mean, that's also a whole different concept. In the 90s, Nike released like once a year, a women's version and a men's version. And that was it. Just one colorway? Yes. Really? Yes. So I thought if it's not the infrared and it's not the laser blue, then what What can it be? There are no other pairs. <laughs> but what I didn't realize back then, uh, shoes got released way before in the UK, 
way before they dropped uh, here in the Netherlands. So I opened up the opened up the box, and there was this crazy for me a crazy colorway, and I was like, "Holy crap! This pair is even better than the infrared, and nobody in the country will probably have this this pair." I was just super stoked with it because I love the colors, and I instantly knew like I'm gonna break some necks wearing these because already you have to. Keep in mind, I was 11 years old, so to have a pair like that on your feet was already a big thing. It was basically only for like 16, 17, 18 year olds. If they were lucky, they could have a pair from the parents. But yeah, I, I put them on feet, and then uh, exactly this happened. Like everybody in my city, when I was walking down the streets in the city center, were like, "What?" <laughs> You're the coolest guy in the Netherlands. Um, sort of. <laughs> at, at least I had that impression. Yeah, that feeling sort of kick-started everything for me. Like, And, and that's, that's amazing. I mean, like, how did that evolve over time? Like, let's say, did you dabble in reselling as well? Was it much just more collecting? Do you have like a hundreds of pairs or dozens or thousands? And like, today, what are you looking for? Do you have stuff you look out for these days? It was such a different time. I mean, we're talking early 90s. I was just a kid. I wasn't collecting. I was just very fond of the the latest and the greatest trainers. And if I had the option, I, I would buy some. But they were super, super expensive. So I could only buy like maybe one or two pairs a year. And sometimes I got a pair from my grandfather and that was it. And I wasn't collecting. I also treated my trainers like like shit. I mean, they were just it was just footwear, right? And when you were done with them, you you threw them out. So no, it 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 actually took years and years before I realized that I I was sort of different because <laughs> I knew I had more pairs than other people. I never felt my I never felt like a collector. I was just buying buying a lot at some point. But when I realized that I was sort of uh, going abroad to buy pairs, flying with my best friend to to New York to look for uh, for new stuff or or old stuff, then I had the, then I realized like okay, maybe this is on a different level than uh, m- most people. <laughs> and also when I figured out that I had way more shoes than any of my girlfriends back then, that was also a sign. <laughs> well, and then today, like if I were to see your collection, like do you just keep like, do you have prized possessions? And also, I mean, I'd love to know, like looking at brands today, right? I think what's and one interesting dynamic is the rise of a few other brands that aren't just Nike and Adidas, but one, I guess, what's your personal preference when you look at like, are you like a Jordan guy? Are you, I mean, Air Max, of course, seem to play like a role, but do you collect a bit of everything? Do you have any favorites? And then, and then we can talk about, you know, like dynamics, how that's changed as well. Yeah, I would say for a very, very long time, I was like 100% Nike. Uh, and I owned some Jordans, but then we're talking also early 90s. But I don't know, I'm just not a big fan of uh, of iTops. I, I don't know why. I, I had a couple of pairs in the in the, when I was younger, but after I, I stopped wearing them. So for me, it's all about yeah, still 
trainers like Athletic Shoes. And I guess I'm a sucker for uh, nostalgia because almost all the stuff I buy and like is from the early 90s. Really? Okay. Yeah. The, the, the thing is, I can really appreciate uh, different models, like recent models, or, but I don't know. <laughs> for me, the, there's this, let's say, from eight, se- 87 till 93, 94. For me, those were sort of the golden ages design-wise. So uh, over the years, I started buying other brands, other models. Like I said, in the beginning, it was all about the Air Max. And that's also a typical Dutch thing. So uh, Air Max 1, Air Max 90, and everything in between. And then later on, I started buying uh, Essex, Gelite 3, Gelite 5, Saucony's. But I always restricted myself because uh, as a, well, at some point I got a collector, obviously can go on a buying spree. And I wanted to sort of limit myself before I went completely off the rails. <laughs> so that's also a reason why I, for a long time I bought a specific brand and specific model before I moved on to another brand. Because I always had a in the back of my mind, like the minute I start buying into a new brand and a new model, I already know uh, what colorways or what releases I want to have. So, okay, I will buy my first pair of Essex Jelly 3. Cool. But now I need to have this colorway, this limited edition. And yeah, that, then it's down the rabbit hole. <laughs> well, I, one thing that you just mentioned a few minutes ago that I find interesting is you mentioned Air Max is that's a very Dutch thing. Is that like a uniquely like, I don't know, in the Netherlands, Air Maxes are the most popular model for sure. Has that always been the case? Has that changed? No, I, I, it's strongly connected to the Dutch Haber uh, and hardcore scene, which was also huge in the 90s. Uh, and ever, I mean, we're, it's more than 20 years later, but that will never go away. I mean, it's, it's really enrooted in Dutch culture, culture, this Air Max. You will, you will also see it if you come to the Dutch event, like the amount of Air Maxes being worn, being sold. Uh, you won't see that anywhere else in Europe. Really? Yeah. I mean, there are different cities where they wear different Air Maxes. Like in, in London, uh, the MX-95 has always been uh, like a super relevant thing. Same goes for Milan slash Italy. Uh, but I would say the Dutch go really hard on the MX-1 and the MX-90. Well, I know one of the, one of the big Air Max collabs from the last years was the Pata collab, right? Which is a Dutch brand, isn't it? Yeah, I know that's one thing that was one of the bigger ones I've seen the last couple of years. No, that's yeah. th- that's really that, interesting. I, yeah. I think, now that you mention it, that also really helped, especially among collectors, that Pata, Pata put out the uh, some of the best collaborations already back in the days. That also sort of push, pushed it to, an, to another level. What's your take on maybe non-Nike brands. I mean, Adidas is obviously a big brand, but I think about, 
you know, I was looking at StockX's um, report on the fastest growing brands over the last few years. Last year, On was was number one, then Mischief, Solomon. New Balance was the only brand that was in the top 10 best selling and top 10 fastest growing. You know, you mentioned Essex, you know, there's there's a lot of others. Birkenstock is going public, which I mean, maybe slightly different category, but that's happening this week. But interesting. Yeah. What what's how, what's your take on how that's evolved and how that will change? You know, like Nike's still dominant for sure, but like what's your take on the evolution of this the market share? Yeah, the, the, it, it's I mean that that's also what makes it interesting, obviously, that it's constantly changing and evolving. Like I mentioned Essex, they had a really good run. Uh, is it? Jeez, time's flying. I would say 2014 till 2017-ish. Really strong collaborations. And also everybody on the street was picking up on it. It was not just the, the collectors and the, and the hardcore sneaker freaks, but uh, yeah, they managed to also... Uh, bring in the, the wider audience. Yeah, and, and this is something, and, and then it sort of dies down again. And, and you see this happening all the time. I mean, uh, a big part of my collection is still uh, from Nike, uh, but for the last five years or so, six years, I've been wearing mostly New Balance. Uh, and for me, it, it's cool to see that now for the last two years, everybody's picking up on New Balance. Because five, six years ago, everybody was like, dude, <laughs> what you wearing? New Balance? Come on. <laughs> well, it's it's also considering, you know, you are not only pretty aware of the macro trends, but you see stuff at a grassroots level, right? Like you, you go to these events that, you know, you're obviously helping put on. You're not just like reading articles about growth, but you're talking to people every single day who are sneaker resellers or just buyers. People just love sneakers. People there sell their own stuff. Do you, do you think that the growth of new trends and let's say new, new balance being cool again, does that, can you point to why that happened? Is that just like a mixture of cultural factors? Is it good marketing by the brand itself? Because I'd imagine you've, you've had conversations with people at a grassroots level as well as to why they start liking new balance much more than 10 years ago. Yeah. Like I said, uh, it's, it's constantly evolving and people, it, it's with, with fashion in general, uh, I would say at some point, a brand or multiple couple of brands are getting really popular and they get adopted by the by the wider audience. And at, at that time, you already see the movement from uh, going opposite. Like, okay, you think this is now New Balance is cool? Okay, then we're going to shy away from it and look for something fresh again because you don't want to be wearing the same uh, shoes as your mom. Like the, the the minute that happens, that's when a lot of people move on to to, to something uh, to something else. Uh, yeah, and like I said, that's what you see happening all the time. Like if if, if you would have told me maybe three years ago that the uh, Hoka and On and Solomon they they would become big, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's crazy. It's crazy. Well, I mean, if I think about. You being at Sneakerness, let's say 10 years ago, like let's say Sneakerness Rotterdam or Amsterdam versus now, a lot of things have changed, right? One, StockX and other similar marketplaces didn't really exist, or I think maybe they've just yeah. got, yeah, right, they didn't exist. You have these new brands that may or may not have been interesting. You have maybe just like a more globalized e-commerce market too. Maybe you have sneakers becoming cooler in the sense that sneakerheads, hype beast, resale cultures become stronger. If you were to think about the last 10 years, like 
maybe it's those something I mentioned just now, or maybe it's something else. But what are like the one, two biggest changes you've seen in terms of what makes the sneaker culture different now versus sneakerness if we went 10 years ago? Like I said, it's how we, how we started being an event f- for the hardcore sneaker freaks, which were, that was super niche. We were just a bunch of nerds drooling over limited edition shoes nobody cared about. But yeah, nowadays it sort of dripped down to, 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 to the wider audience. That, that's, yeah, that's a major change, obviously. And then the rise of uh, reselling culture. When you would have, when you would go to a sneaker, sneakerness event 10 years ago, nine out of 10 sellers there were just basically guys like me with a big personal collection where they wanted to get rid of maybe 30 pairs to make room for new pairs. <laughs> it was sort of to keep their collection fresh. And uh, yeah, that, that was the main reason for selling for, for most of the people there. But if you go to the events now, those people are super hard to find. And in a way, that's a shame because they always bring something different to the tables. I really like that. I still get the emails from time to time like, hey, I'm selling my personal collection. Do you, do you have, uh, do you have a, a space for me? Then those are the guys that I, I will reply to first because I love have, having them. But for nine out of 10, it's, it's, yeah, 100% business. And I can also see it in some of the sellers that have been with us for almost from the start. Uh, some of those guys came to the events at the biggest, let's say, vintage collections. And they were already like professionally reselling, but they had a niche that they would, uh, that they would sell. But even those guys are now, yeah, basically, uh, I w- wouldn't say in it just for the money but they see where the money is made. So, uh, yeah, they also jump on, uh, on, on what's popular and uh, what, what, what's selling uh, like hotcakes. So, yeah, that, that's a huge, huge difference. One other thing that definitely has to do with it uh, is, is social media. Yeah. I mean, th- I think that made also a ton of difference. Like before social media was really a thing, I mean, who were you going to show your limited edition kicks to? A bunch of friends. That was it. And um, the rest of the world was not aware of it. Yeah, with, with the rise of so- social media, it's, it's taking a couple of pictures and do some cool videos. And uh, all of a sudden, the, the whole world can enjoy what you're wearing. And it's also sort of, yeah, I, I, would, see, I would say people are making each other like go crazy. Like, ah, oh, he or she has that pair. Now I need to have that as well. Like before, nope, <laughs> nobody would have cared. So, uh, well, I know we're unfortunately running out of time shortly, but I'd love to know, I mean, before we start closing up, you know, the world of sneakers, we've, we've talked about a lot of things. It's great to hear about sneakerness and the things that you're focusing on. Is there a topic and maybe like the sneaker or even just broader culture world that we haven't talked about that you're following right now that maybe you're excited about or a trend or a topic that we haven't discussed? What's really interesting at the moment is that a lot of brands are in a tough spot. Yeah. So yeah, let's let's see what happens next. If you follow any of the news, it's pretty obvious that uh, a lot of the big brands are, uh, are uh, having uh, difficult times sitting on huge uh, stocks, failing uh, bringing uh, new models 
like relying too much on uh, the older modern models that have been uh, doing well for them. So yeah, these are really interesting times. But uh, luckily for for us as sneakers, it, it's really good to see that the sneaker community by itself that that's still super strong and even even growing. So even if they are sort of in trouble uh, at the moment, I would say uh, the 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 sneaker community is still super strong and not going anywhere. Well. It's been so amazing speaking to you. I know we're running out of time here, but I'd love to to close with like the last two questions that I have for every guest. The first being, where can people find you on like social media or the website for sneakerness? And then also, do you have any like last message you'd like to leave with the audience? Two tough one. <laughs> well, you can find me on uh, on LinkedIn, uh, Matthijs van der Beulen. Not not an easy name, but. Uh, I'm pretty sure if, write you, it down. if you look up something similar, you will find me on Instagram. Although I'm not that active, to be honest, uh, my account is uh, silly sire. And uh, any interesting thoughts? Pooh, tough one. <laughs> we discussed so many already. I know. Maybe the what I was uh, was saying, uh, what my answer was on the, on your last uh, question is that uh, yeah, that, that's amazing to see that uh, whatever happens, happens. But the sneaker community is is alive and kicking and is definitely not going anywhere anytime soon. So, uh, yeah. And a great, strong, optimistic message to close on as we look to hopefully the beautiful future of sneaker growth. And I look forward to seeing future sneakerness events around the world, maybe, you know, in the Middle East or Spain or whatever that is next. So thank you so much for the time and appreciate you being on the podcast. You're welcome, man. My pleasure. Thank you for listening to the New Street X podcast. You can learn more about the guest in the show notes and learn more about New Street at newstreet.com. Please make sure to like, follow, subscribe across YouTube, Apple, Spotify, and more. Thank you so much. See you next time.